You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Good morning, and my name's Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mountain View. And if you are visiting with us for the first time, a very special welcome to you. After a two-month hiatus, we are jumping back into the book of Exodus this morning. And uh, as Justin just prayed, I do uh, hope and pray for all of us that we will finish strong as we go through the second half of the book. Now, just to set the stage for you, we are going to go a bit quicker through the second half of the book. We're probably going to spend about eight to ten weeks in uh the latter part of chapter 20 all the way through chapter 40. And we're basically going to divide these chapters up into a set of scenes that hopefully on Sunday mornings uh, we can summarize together. And beyond that, hopefully these times will compel you to dig in deeper into uh, the lengthier texts that we're going to try to work our way through for the rest of our time in the book of Exodus. And just a preview of coming attractions. Once we finish Exodus, we're going to work our way through the book of Ephesians this year. And I am so, so excited about that. Well, let's play a game this morning. I'm going to share a strange law with you. And you raise your hand if you think it's true or false. According to a law passed in 1969 in Skamania County, Washington, it is illegal to kill Bigfoot. (laughs) The law was later amended designating Bigfoot an endangered species. If you think that's true, raise your hand. Anyone think that's false? It is in fact true. In Louisiana, it is illegal to participate in bear wrestling. True? False. It is, in fact, true. In Idaho, as in most places, it is illegal to eat another human being. Unless one can prove that it was done, quote, under extreme life-threatening conditions as the only apparent means of survival. True or false? It is in fact true. In Kentucky... It's illegal to carry ice cream in your back pocket. (laughs) True or false? It is in fact true. In Arizona, in Arizona, it's illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. Now before I ask the question, are you sensing a pattern here? True? Or false, 
It is, in fact, true. Now, if you are anything like me, hearing about these laws makes you wonder why in the world they were even passed in the first place. In fact, knowing why they were put in place is essential to understanding them. For example, the law about donkeys sleeping in bathtubs was passed in 1924 after a dam broke and washed away a donkey that had a tendency to sleep on a man's property in an abandoned bathtub and officials had such a hard time rescuing the donkey that they made a law that no one should ever allow a donkey to sleep in a bathtub again. Or what about the law in Kentucky that says you can't carry around ice cream in your back pocket? Did you know that that law was enacted to prevent horse thievery? Apparently horses like ice cream. And so you could put ice cream in your back pocket, walk by a horse, and it might just follow you. And in following you, You might be purposefully trying to take someone else's animal. Thus, the law. Now these laws sound silly to us, but they all made sense at the time and in the places where they were enacted. All perhaps except the law regarding Bigfoot. Chances are, that you and I read many of the strange-sounding laws in the Old Testament the same way. Don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Don't wear clothing made of two different kinds of fabric. Don't Plant more than one kind of seed in a field? If you take the life of a home invader at night, it's considered self-defense. If you take the life of a home invader during the day, it's not. You couple our lack of understanding with the fact that we tend to think that passages like the one we're going to look at this morning have nothing really to say to us in terms of application. And you have a recipe for getting lost in the types of texts we're going to look at this morning or simply at best ignoring what we find in Exodus chapters 20 through 23. This morning, I hope that I can convince you that these texts and even the strangest instructions that God gave the nation of Israel are well worth your time and mine. More than that, I hope that you will come to see that God does in fact have something to say to us through these ancient and sometimes Very, very strange instructions. I have to confess, I love passages 
like Exodus chapters 20 through 23. I love the obscurity of them. I love the fact that most of the time, no one has ever heard these texts preach. And I love the challenge of convincing you to go home and not only read them, but read them differently and read them with profit. So I want to pray for us. We're not going to read directly through these three chapters of Scripture. That would take most of our time. But what I want to do this morning is, for the most part, give you a grid for reading the instructions that are in what is called in Scripture the Book of the Covenant. So let's pray, and we're going to dive in and attempt to do that this morning. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for these words which you have inspired, not originally to us, but certainly as we have them today, for us. Father, through your Holy Spirit, help us to understand them, to appreciate what place they had in the lives of your your people, and more importantly, to wisely discern their significance for us today. Father, there are a lot of things in these chapters that, frankly, in our Bible reading, we might well skip over. Some things we would shake our heads at, many things we just don't understand, nor do we, nor do we even have the tools to consider how they might apply to us. But I pray today that you would give them to, give those to us, and that you would teach us and help us to come to a place where we are uh, in more of all and more all of who you are, what you've done for us in Christ, and the riches that you have given us in the whole counsel of your word. We ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm going to do this morning <clears throat> is, frankly, more uh, teach you how to come at these kinds of passages of Scripture. It begins by learning to ask the right question. Now, if we put in at Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, which is really where these instructions begin, we find that uh, the Holy Spirit has written these words. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Now that's referring back to the first half of Exodus chapter 20, where God delivered the Ten Commandments, not only to Moses, but in the hearing of all of the people. Once that delivery was complete, we read last time we were in Exodus that Moses went back up the mountain and Moses received a second, in fact, more detailed set of instructions, which begin... In chapter 21, verse 1, where we read these words. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before the nation of Israel. And then those rules commence, and they go all the way through chapter 23, verse 19. If you and I are going to read those instructions rightly, we have to learn how to ask the right question of texts like this. 
I want to tell you what the right question is not. The right question simply is not, how do we follow these today? That kind of approach misunderstands the progressive nature of Revelation as a divine story which centers upon Christ. In other words, the Old Testament was written for us, but the Old Testament was not originally written to us. That more specifically can be said about the instructions given in Exodus chapters 20 through 23. The whole point of the whole counsel of God is to lay out for us this divine story of redemption, which God is in the process of unfolding in the book of Exodus, a story which will culminate in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So as Christians, you and I have to read texts like this in light of the gospel, in light of who Christ is, what he's done, and the significance of that event and of his life and death and resurrection for us. A better question to ask when you and I approach texts like this is simply this. How did God deal with these people after redeeming them from slavery? How did God deal with these people after redeeming them from slavery? We see God setting them free. We see the salvation event at the Red Sea. We see God bringing them to himself at Mount Sinai. We see God entering into a covenant relationship with them and then giving them the Ten Commandments and further the specific instructions that we find in these chapters. What does this tell us about the pattern of salvation we find in the scriptures. A pattern, by the way, that plays itself out both in the Old and New Testaments. Simply this, obedience is the God-ordained response to redemption. Think about how the book of Exodus plays out. It's redemption and then the giving of the law. It's salvation and then the delivery of the commandments and instructions that God expects from his people. You could essentially summarize the book of Exodus with the great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Listen to what Matthew writes beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to him, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism signifies life out of death, a change of identity from slavery to sin to now being slaves of righteousness. Baptism harkens back to the journey of the children of Israel through the Red Sea. So baptizing disciples into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them what? 
to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So salvation, obedience. Redemption, response. You and I respond to the gospel in the same way that the children of Israel responded to the voice of God when God said to them at the Red Sea, go forward into the midst of the sea. If you want to be saved, that's where you have to go. In Romans chapter 1, Paul calls that the obedience of faith. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 14, what is it that God says to his people? In verse 14, he says, the Lord, he says this through Moses, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And then later in the chapter in verse 22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. There at the Red Sea, the people had to trust that God was going to save them, and they had to trust the way in which God was going to save them, and their trusting issued in obedience. Walk forward if you want to be saved. Paul calls that in Romans 1, the obedience of faith. You and I come to faith in Christ by hearing the word of the gospel, by receiving and responding to the commands, repent and believe. The Christian life itself works in the same way. In fact, it's nothing less then responding to God with the obedience of faith, with hearing and trusting God's words, and then obeying Him. From front to back, in fact, the whole Bible, biblical spirituality, or what it means to walk with God, is first of all a spirituality of the ear. First and foremost, God is the God who speaks. We see that from chapter 1 of the scriptures. And God's people are those who hear him and who then respond by listening and obeying. Now, it is a strange thing to me. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, to hear God say... Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have what? Spoken to you from heaven. You've seen how I've spoken. You've seen how I've spoken. So it was through that visual revelation on the mountain that the people of God knew that Yahweh had called them to himself but he revealed himself to them ultimately through what? Talking to them. Through giving them the commandments and instructions that we find in these chapters. Ultimately, we might well say that in the case of walking with God, before it does anything else, 
love listens. When we were in Psalm 1 last week and we talked about the person who walks with God, delighting in God's word and meditating on, day and meditating on it day and night. After last Sunday, it just hit me that ultimately doing that is a form of love for God. Love listens first. So how well do we listen? When you read through the rest of Israel's story, the answer for them is not very well. Speaking of listening, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record a remarkable event in the life of Jesus. If you've got your Bible, which I hope you do this morning, we're going to be all over the place. You can turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 2 through 8. Verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's stay here. How about that? Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, this is an incredibly important scene for understanding the instructions we find in Exodus 20 through 23 as Christians. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this story of Peter, James, and John accompanying Jesus up on the mountain where he is transfigured before them. He begins to glow with this immense light from the inside out. This isn't a light shining upon him. This is his internal glory as the Son of God being revealed to his closest associates. And suddenly, Moses and Elijah are there with him talking. But as the scene progresses, Mark tells us that the Father's voice from heaven comes to these three disciples and says to them, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And what happens to Moses and Elijah? They're gone. What's the significance of that? Listen to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. All of God's revelation has been pointing toward him. All of God's revelation finds its culmination in him. This is why we ask the first question that we ask, 
not directly how do these apply today, but essentially how, how did God deal with these people once he had redeemed them? It's the same question you and I should be asking today. How does God deal with us? What does God expect from us when he redeems us? Whose voice are we listening to? Who, whose voice plays the central role in our lives? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, it is now Jesus who gives shape to the Christian life. You and I are to keep what the Apostle Paul calls the royal law of Christ. What is the royal law of Christ? John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, Jesus himself in the passage that we read at the beginning of the service, summarize the entirety of God's law with the two great commandments. Matthew chapter 27, verses 34 through, um, I'm sorry, verses 37 to 41, Matthew 22. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. How much of it? All of it. All the law and all the prophets. So we're to listen to Jesus. Jesus tells us to keep his commandment, which is ultimately summarized by loving God with everything we are and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And in fact, this is how Jesus himself lived. Jesus embodied the law perfectly. He demonstrated throughout his life from beginning to end exactly what it looks like to love God with everything you are and to love his neighbor as himself. He not only summarized the law with his words, he showed us what it means to be in right relationship with God and then to live out all of the instructions given to God's people in the Old Testament, summarizing them through his own love for his Father and his love for us. Through his death, he also meets the need that all of these instructions expose. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. Ultimately, the law can't make anyone right with God because you and I can't perfectly obey it from the inside out. So the Apostle Paul recognized that one of the major purposes 
of all of the 613 commandments that are given in the Old Testament is to show you and I how wretched we are. How far, how, excuse me, how far we fall from meeting God's perfect standard of holiness. So Jesus embodies the law perfectly and he meets the need that these instructions expose. That is how he fulfills the law. You and I also need to understand as we listen to him that we're no longer under the covenant that will be ratified in Exodus chapter 24. You and I are under a new covenant. Now, when we get to Exodus chapter 24, you're going to see that that first covenant was in fact ratified in blood. But the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never ultimately and finally atone for human sin. That requires a human sacrifice. It's ultimately why Jesus had to die, and it's why Jesus only had to give his life once because he wasn't simply a human sacrifice, he is also divine. And so his was a perfect and eternal giving of himself for our sin. In the new covenant, Jesus took upon himself the curse of death for our sin that we might receive through Jesus all of the blessings of the covenant. Not because we've earned them, but because we have entrusted ourselves by faith to him. Because we've believed the word of the gospel. We have, as Paul said, come under Christ's rule and reign through the obedience of faith. And now through Christ, the New Testament tells us that you and I have been released to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Romans 7, 6. But now we are what? Released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that you and I have been released from the judgment that was due to us because of our disobedience to the instructions given to human beings by God. Jesus took that curse, that punishment upon himself. So when Jesus died, all of those who entrust themselves to him have died also so that now we experience the resurrection of new life through the giving of the Spirit. Such that now we follow Jesus in the way and by the power of the Spirit, not relying first upon a written code to direct our behavior and our steps, but relying upon whom? The Spirit of God within us. And Paul says in Galatians 5 that this spirit grows within us virtues that cannot be expressed in any law. It's why Paul says there that there is no law against the things that the spirit 
produces in God's people. Which are these. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. How do you codify goodness? How do you say to someone, you must be good? How do you codify kindness? You must be kind. How do you codify patience? You must be patient. You see, God ultimately through Jesus and the presence of his spirit in the hearts and the lives of you and I, his people, his goal for us is not outward conformity to a standard of conduct. His goal for us is that we would be different people from the inside out who reflect the character of Christ. That is what the Spirit is doing within us, and that is what the Spirit is doing among us. So reading Exodus chapter 20 through 23 begins with asking the right question, and it moves from that to remembering that you and I as new covenant believers must listen to instructions like that in and through Jesus. He's not only our teacher, he is our Redeemer. He's not only our Redeemer, he's the perfect covenant-keeping son. He's not only the perfect covenant-keeping son, he kept that on our behalf and through his death and resurrection paid for our disobedience and he's now given us his spirit and his spirit is now producing his character in us as we abide in him, which we talked about last week. Now some of you, if you're anything like me, Perhaps you've already read through these chapters at some point in time. Perhaps you did it in your seat this morning while you were waiting for the service to begin. And now you're like, yeah, but what about? Well, all of the instructions in the book of the covenant, just like all of those silly laws that we talked about at the beginning, they had a meaning and a purpose for God's people at that point in redemptive history. You see, ultimately, as we talked about when we were in the midst of Exodus chapter 19, God is wanting his people to be what? Holy, separate, distinct, different, recognizable as his people. In other words, all of these instructions, they they aren't simply intended to codify some idealistic society. The book of the covenant and every one of the instructions from those we would think, yeah, that's, that's a good idea, to those we would go, wow, I don't even understand where this might come from. All of them represent God speaking into an ancient world and instructing his people who inhabited that world with words of wisdom 
Words of wisdom designed to help them specifically know in that time and in that place what it would mean for them to live with God and to represent God to all of the pagan nations surrounding them. To in effect be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this is one of the primary reasons that the instructions in the book of the covenant sound very strange. Some of them, frankly, even offensive to us. Here we see Yahweh giving the nation of Israel clear instructions for how to relate to him and how to relate to each other and how to relate to surrounding nations so that they can be like a shining city on a hill in the midst of other nations who worship other gods and very often practice horrible, horrible things. So in all of these instructions, God is essentially saying to Israel, This may be how they do things in Egypt. This may be how they do things among the Amorites. This may be how they do things among the Perizzites. This may be how they do things among the Amalekites. This may be how they do things among the Hittites, but not in Israel. Fine, you say. Mike, what about... What about the instructions regarding slaves that kick off the book of the covenant? Look at Exodus 21 verses 1 through 11. You might read that and you might say, wait a second. Didn't God just liberate this people from slavery? Why in the world is he giving them instructions on how to treat slaves that they might have? Exodus 21 verses 1 through 11 read, Now these are the rules you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, The wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave... She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, I will tell you, and this may well apply to you, some people 
will point to passages like this and say, look, the God of the Old Testament is a monster. The God of the Old Testament is pro-slavery. What kind of God is this that you people worship? You might even be thinking that this morning. Just a few things that get you thinking. The kind of slavery that we're talking about here isn't the kind of slavery that existed in the Americas. Just know the slave trade was a horrific, evil practice. Listen to what Exodus 21.16 says. Whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Just so we're clear on that. In ancient Israel, it was common to sell yourself into slavery in order to pay a debt or to rise up out of poverty. There were no banks from which you could take out a loan. When you sold yourself to someone, it meant not only that your basic needs would be met, but that you would have an opportunity over time to pay off your debt. You and I can also see in this text that when someone did sell themselves into slavery, it was not permanent. In fact, God stipulated that it was to last for only six years and that in the seventh year, everyone would be released and revert back to their own lives. Ultimately, here we find God speaking into a practice that was pervasive in the ancient world and giving guidance to improve that practice. Take the example of a man selling his daughter into slavery. Can you imagine being in such a position that that was the only option you had left? Now notice what God does. In those instructions, God protects the dignity of the girl who's being sold into slavery by telling the man who receives her, you're going to take her as your wife. If you don't want to take her as your wife, your son will take her as his wife. If neither of you wants to do that, what's to happen to her? She's to be sent back home. So God, in the midst of what was a practice that he never instituted, is making space to protect the dignity of the people at that time who would have been forced by poverty and debt to enter themselves or even a family member into that institution. Do you see? The dignity afforded slaves in ancient Israel by these instructions It's like a seed planted into the ground that would ultimately bear fruit in even some of the abolition movements that existed in the Americas and in England in the early 1800s. 
Fruit that would ultimately come out of statements like these in the New Testament. In Christ, there is neither what? Slave nor free. All or one in Christ Jesus. We're ultimately, again, talking about the progressive nature of revelation. And how God, over time, is working out his salvation purposes. What about this whole deal in Exodus 23 19. What does that one say? The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, you and I, we don't have any way to know specifically why the nation of Israel was prohibited. From doing that, that practice could have been part of a Canaanite fertility ritual. It's also possible that God wanted his people to maintain the distinction between life and death in everything that they did. A mother's goat, a mother goat's milk is not for taking life, it's what? For giving life. Doing this could have been an affront to God's created purposes. It very well could have involved taking what God intended as life-giving for the animal and using it instead to kill the goat, which is contrary to that for which God intended it. What about this whole eye-for-an-eye business? Exodus 21, 23 to 25. But if there is harm... Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, oftentimes we tend to be put off by that, but I want you to realize that that particular instruction was intended to minimize the punishment that could be inflicted upon an offender. In other words, if someone steals your cow, you don't get to slit his throat. That's not how that works. It's intended by God to limit wisely what can and should be done to an offender based on the crime the offender committed. That's pretty wise, isn't it? Otherwise, we just have vigilantes running around everywhere. Look, bottom line, these instructions, they weren't written to us, but they were written for us. Just as it was tempting for ancient Israel to adopt the practices of their unbelieving neighbors, it will also be tempting for you and I to adopt the practices of our unbelieving neighbors. The real question for us is this, what are the essential marks of being a holy nation now? What are the essential marks of being a kingdom of priests now? What are the essential marks of being a set-apart people now? You see, through these instructions, whether it's instructions about 
life or property or relationships, God is essentially saying to us with broad brushstrokes that require you and I to consider the place and the time in which we find ourselves as 21st century Christians. You and I might translate these instructions this way in a broad fashion. This may be how they do things in Cherokee County. This may be how they do things in North Carolina. This may be how they do things in the United States of America, but not in my family. So if we're going to understand texts like these, We've got to ask the right question. We've got to discipline ourselves to listen delightfully to Jesus. We've got to be willing to enter into the difficult texts and study them and consider why God might have enacted them when and how he did. And then finally, you and I have to realize that in spite of the fact that so much of these things don't directly apply to us anymore because we don't live in the time and place that Israel did, there is still much to be gleaned from these instructions. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God. How much of it? All of it from beginning to end. That's why we work through books of the Bible. Your pastor doesn't get to skip over hard texts like this. All scripture is breathed out by God and what? Profitable for Teaching. Do you know what that means, brothers and sisters? That means there is gold in them, their hills. There are riches to be mined in Exodus 20 through 23 that you might never have considered because you thought, well, these don't directly apply to me. I'm going to skip right over that. They're boring anyway. No, there is profit here. Paul says there is. The obedience of faith then says, okay, Paul, we're going to dive in. Holy Spirit, will you teach us? These words are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Look, when you read through these chapters and you read the specific instructions given, they show us something, something at the principal level of what it means to love God and love others as citizens of his kingdom. That's what God was establishing among his people, by the way. God rescued them out of slavery in order to make them his own people, in order to be king over them and to teach them and train them in a new way of life. These instructions show us at the end of the day that there is no realm off limits to God 
when we become citizens of his kingdom. Read through the instructions, both in Exodus and in Leviticus. They cover everything from how you treat animals to how you treat your spouse to how your kids treat you, to the kinds of clothes you wear, the kinds of foods you eat. Now, many of those things we don't have to obey now, but what do those things teach us, generally speaking? That God has the authority to speak into any, every, and all areas of your life and mine. God redeemed Israel from slavery for slavery. Exodus 8, 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may what? Serve me. God redeemed you and I from slavery for slavery. Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God, That you who were once what? Slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've now become what? Slaves of righteousness. Friends, Jesus is our king. And if we have entrusted ourselves to him, then we are learning together how to bring every area of our lives into obedience and submission to him. There is no part of your life and mine which we can call mine. We have to call all of it his. He's Lord of creation and Lord of the church, and to receive him as Savior is to receive him as Lord. May you and I, Because the Spirit indwells us. May we willingly submit ourselves to Christ as his servants. Out of love for him and a genuine desire to be with no one else. To have no other master. And to be citizens in no other kingdom. I love the picture that's painted in Exodus 21, 5, and 6. And it's a prayer I think that you and I can pray together as God's people. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave. How long? Forever. Friends, you will never find a kinder king than God. You will never find a more merciful master than Jesus. May we respond Just as these verses indicate, may we say both to him and to one another, I can't imagine being anywhere else than in his service. And in 2023, may we consecrate ourselves to him as this picture paints for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
for the opportunity to spend some time thinking about what for us are often boring, even difficult texts of Scripture to think about and to apply. Lord, that often means we don't read them, we don't look at them, we don't examine them. We don't allow them to challenge us. We don't spend any time with you in them. Father, I pray that after today, that'll change. I pray that this week, everybody in this room will just take a few minutes to sit down and read Exodus 20 through 23 and ask you to simply speak. To speak and show us, not first and foremost how these apply, but areas of our own lives where we are frankly being disobedient, where we aren't listening, where we aren't following. Areas of our lives that aren't consecrated to you because, Lord Jesus, over every area of our lives, you cry, mine. May we give our whole selves to you and may we truly say, because we love you, we don't want to be anywhere else. We don't want to serve any other master. Jesus, you're our king. May that be the cry of our hearts. In his name we pray. Amen. Why don't we-